This is Software Defined Survival, where we explore how software-defined systems are changing the business of AVIT. Today on Software Defined Survival. Another place where software can replace hardware is in the control system stack. And, and looking at the ability for open source software to replace what we currently use as you know, very proprietary technologies for control and user interface. The model of that technology being closed and proprietary just doesn't really, won't really get us there, won't really get us into the future. We're having something that is open that anyone can write a node for and publish and that you, can, you really can connect with anything. That I think is, is, is absolutely where we have to go and, and where the industry will start to trend to. We'll just have these external pressures to do that. Okay, well, what's, what's a real change and what's just sort of a possibility? I think this has enough potential, like this idea of software eating into the control stack. Um, I think this has enough potential to disrupt that it's, it's something that should be taken seriously and looked into and, and understood. Welcome. My name is Patrick Murray, and today's guest has been working at Cornell University for over 16 years and is currently manager of manager of integrated audio and video engineering. He has experience designing and delivering for unified communications, digital signage, video conferencing, web conferencing, content delivery networks, webcasting, and video platform services, as well as cloud-based solutions. In some of our previous conversations, we've talked about some of the alternative solutions he's been looking into, and I'm really looking forward to hearing more about those experiences from Andrew Page. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you for having me. Happy to. Um, is there anything about that introduction that you'd like to correct or expand upon? No, you just reminded me, though, that it is a little old at this point and could use some updating. Your LinkedIn profile, you mean? Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, tell us, how did you get started in AV? How did you wind up in this little niche industry? Oh, wow. Um, I think it goes back to probably high school and, um, you know, messing around with uh, different theater productions and being involved in the tech side of those um, and friends who had bands, you know, kind of getting roped into doing the sound and um, kind of plugging things together and seeing what works and what doesn't work. Um, just having that, I think, uh, technical ability to take things apart and put them together and kind of understand um, how they're going to work. And then that led to, um, when, I, when I went to do my undergrad at Ithaca College, I ma majored in television and radio production. And that kind of solidified that trajectory for me, um, getting into video production and producing things within the studio and producing stuff in the field, um, getting into audio production and music recording. Um, which then after college turned into a couple of years doing live sound freelance, um, which is a great gig in the summer, but when winter rolls around, there's not a whole lot to do in uh, central New York unless you want to go on the road. Um, and eventually I got a job at a, a small company called Glyph Technologies, which um, maybe some of our listeners remember, but was a hard drive manufacturer. They made uh, hard drives and CD burners and tape backup for the uh, music recording industry and also for the film production industry. 
and they would rack mount these devices and um, they qualify them with various digital audio workstations and, and nonlinear editors. And so I did tech support for them for a couple of years and that was a great gig, especially right out of college. Um, you, you, the phone would ring and you pick it up and it'd be like, Hey, this is Herbie Hancock. And so you're like, Oh, Hey, how's it going? Cool. And we had a, a great customer base. Uh, we had um, Sony pictures and uh, Herbie Hancock and um, uh, Guns and Roses was a customer and um, just a very wide base sting. Um, you, you just never knew who you're going to be talking to or who was going to be calling for support. And uh, that, that job lasted for a little while until I finally ended up landing uh, this job here at Cornell. And I've been uh, kind of working my way uh, up through the ranks, uh, started out at the Language Resource Center, which uh, was a job where I was creating language tapes and digitizing old material and managing a Mac and PC computer lab and there's satellite operations and some other stuff. So that really got me a lot of experience with various systems and, and managing things to be uh, operational on a, on a um, fairly consistent level, me meaning that the, the systems couldn't be down. They had to be running and operational. Um, and then uh, a job opened up uh, for a new venue that was being renovated. It was a 1300 seat performing arts hall here at Cornell. And um, the technical director position opened up and I uh, applied for that. And that was a great job because I got to do sound, I got to do video conferencing, video streaming, involved in a lot of great events, a lot of great concerts, dignitary visits. Um, and that helped me to really see the whole university and get a good insight into how the uh, university operates and the, the various um, uh, interplays that go on between departments and, um, and various stakeholders. Uh, and so after a few years of that, uh, moved into a manager role and now I'm uh, managing the video engineering team and event support team. And so we support uh, a video conferencing and web conferencing service, uh, which is based on Cisco infrastructure and Zoom um, as a software as a service package. Uh, we offer a video platform service, which is built on Kaltura which drives all the online video that comes through cornell.edu and through the libraries and through our LMS um, and elsewhere. And then we have an event technical support service, which uh, we have staff that go out and they support things like town hall meetings and distance learning classes and uh, inaugurations when we have those and commencement convocation um, and all those special events that go on and a digital signage service. And then finally uh, integrated uh, AV engineering service, which does AV consulting essentially and facilitates design build process. Uh, and we do peer review of some of the larger capital projects that come through the university. Um, and so that's been um, my primary focus for about the past six years. And, and what we've been trying to do there is really trying to migrate away from proprietary te technologies and move more towards standards based stuff more um, traditional IT technologies where we can. And we're also looking at taking the hardware stack and migrating it to software where it makes sense. And then that software itself, moving that to software as a service or cloud-based services where we can. So um, as many of the audio people listening will hear, we got Andrew here to, uh, to put a headset on. So the audio should be just a little better now. 
But you said really a mouthful there. So you, you took us through your career path and then you started digging into the meat of what this podcast is about. And that's the migration to more IT-based solutions. So I just want to comment quickly about that career trajectory. And you know, the more I think about it, this um, background in live sound and music and you know, it comes down to production. I think it's a great training field for, for many different fields. It's a, it's a great way to learn about technology, especially because you're interested in it, right? It's, it's cool to make music and, and to put on a show. So you're interested in it. You need to learn about this technology. You learn about production just because, you know, the show must go on. You learn about showing up on time, everything being in the right time, uh, in the right place at the right time. I think there's a lot to be said for being in a, in a rock band when you're a teenager or at least having hanging out with a crowd that does that. Of course, you could take it in many different directions, but um, the more people that I talk to about this, the more I realize there are many different ways you could take those skills to more, um, I don't know, more grown-up type of endeavors. Absolutely. Yeah. Really, I think it, it does teach you about the importance of, of, as you said, showing up on time and the show starts at 8.05. You know, there's no there's no room for wiggle on that and um, really kind of will hone your ability to work under deadline and to know what deadlines are important and which ones can slip a little bit. Yeah. All very grown up things. But uh, when, when you're just making music, it's you know, that's the focus and that's, that's the motivator. So I don't know. That's an interesting thought, I think, for, uh, for young people, for their own motivation. So you talked about this move to away from the hardware stack to the IT stack. Of course, there's a reason why we have all this purpose-built equipment floating around. You couldn't do what we do. You couldn't distribute audio and video. You couldn't um, make control systems and touch panels that worked in real time in a show control environment. You, you just couldn't do it with software even 10 years ago, I would say, certainly not 15 or 20 years ago or longer, but now it is possible. So can you talk a little bit more about what that migration looks like? How are you evaluating technologies and equipment? What kind of things are you looking at? Just uh, tell us about what you've been up to. Sure. Uh, so the I think the um, one of the places where we first started to see this about five or six years ago was in the video playback area where we were adding a DVD player or before that a VCR. Um, and then of course, um, more recently Blu-ray players into every build, every uh, standard classroom. And as we rolled out the video platform service, we began to realize that there are opportunities here to um, uh, right size the technology that was going into each classroom and that we could start to use these cloud-based services and this this whole idea that there was some sort of link there between the cloud services that were being rolled out and what was being built in the classroom or the conference room was kind of new and we started to think well we don't really need to put these devices in if we can get people to use video streaming to play back their content um, and there were some hurdles there like around digitizing uh, various pieces of content, but we were able to overcome a lot of those objections and concerns. And people, were, people, professors, faculty were, were starting to do it on their own using YouTube. So to then kind of shift them to more institutional tools to do that was uh, a fairly easy transition. And then we were able to phase out optical media playback devices in our design build. And then as we started to get more into uh, software as a service for web conferencing, 
we realized the same thing was going to happen with video codecs. And we were able to start to, instead of incorporating a, a Polycom or a Cisco hardware codec into a build, we could then put in something like a Vadio AV bridge. And this was uh, several years ago that we started purposely doing this. But what we found over time is that it really wasn't necessarily replacing all of the hardware codecs, software codecs weren't necessarily replacing all the hardware codecs, but that we were just creating more conferencing on campus. There's just more video conferencing and web conferencing that was occurring with the prevalence of the software. Um, and so in some rooms now, we just wouldn't have had, would not have had video conferencing. Now we have that via some sort of software codec. Um, and the rooms where you're still doing high-end distance learning or there's some uh, specialized need, they'll still have the hardware codecs. So it's interesting that in that regard, the software hasn't completely displaced the hardware, it's just created more usage of that type of technology. Um, and where we're now seeing more, you know, I'm sorry, now where we're, we're starting to look at another place where software can replace hardware is in the control system stack. And, and looking at the ability for open source software to replace what we currently use as you know, very proprietary technologies for control and user interface. So I, I like the way, I think there's kind of, there's obviously a cultural shift going on because technology is playing more and more of a role in everyone's lives. And I think it was interesting to note that your professors were doing their own streaming with YouTube, right? So they didn't even need any kind of uh, purpose-built technology to do it. it. The expectation was just there because there's these uh, pressures from the outside. These services are available to pretty much anyone with yeah. an internet connection. And I think that that same idea is available in control, or at least that same expectation is there from end users with control, right? Absolutely. There's smart TVs you can control with Alexa. Everybody has an app. Of course, it's not as integrated as we would like it to be as, as professionals in this industry, but I think the expectation is also there. And um, I'm starting to feel that pressure as well to, to keep up with uh, uh, great looking user interfaces. Can you tell us more about what you've been doing in, in the control space and, uh, and what technologies in particular you're looking at? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And that, that consumerization of IT, I think, is a big pressure and will continue to be a big pressure. Um, and, and we've you know, seen it for years in terms of um, simplicity of design and costs, the, the idea of, well, I can do this in my living room. Why does it cost so much or why is it so complicated to do this at, at my work? Um, and that's something we've always tried to balance is that walk between um, using commercial and consumer technologies, um, technologies that are familiar to the end users um, with building things that we can support at an enterprise scale. Um, the, the technology stack that most interested in right now for control is a software called Node-RED. And it's something that came out of IBM, um, been open sourced and now is part of the uh, I believe it's the Java Foundation. I'd have to look up the exact name of it. Um, and this is an open source platform for Internet of Things. And um, the way I sort of see it, I think the way that it's described in, in their literature is um, a way to wire together things with web services and, and everything yeah. in between. And it's a visual-based programming environment. So you have these nodes that you drag out onto a canvas and then you wire the nodes up. 
and a node could do a lot of different things. So one node could be TCP IP control and another node could be infrared control. And then you could have a node that's just doing some sort of logic for you, um, processing the various signals as they come in. Or you could have a node that is doing HTML and is driving your user interface. Um, it's all based on very familiar technologies for web developers. It's built around JavaScript, which is like the most popular programming language um, if you, uh, out there. And so a lot of front-end developers are going to be very familiar with JavaScript. And then the underlying web server technology is Node.js, which is um, becoming a very, I'd say, popular uh, web server technology. So I'm a big fan of Node-RED. Anybody who's been following my blog and, and looking at the learnavprogramming.com website knows that I think Node-RED, uh, first of all, I'm really grateful that it came out because using modern programming can be really intimidating for somebody coming from an AV environment. Even, even if you're an AMX programmer where you're used to a script type of a language, jumping from that to something object-oriented, something with so many frameworks and different ways of doing things, I think it's intimidating. So I'm grateful that Node-RED is out there because I think it's the easiest way to dip your toe into the waters of, of a more modern programming language. Because like you were saying, you just drag over a TCP node, put in the IP address, and the connection is there. And to deploy it, it's one click. There's no compiling, uploading. You could run it on your laptop. You could run it pretty much anywhere on a Raspberry Pi. It's just really flexible and simple to get started. So I'm really excited about it. And if you do need to get more complicated, like you said, you're, you're just writing JavaScript in, in these little, there's a function node where you could write as much JavaScript as you like. So it is really flexible. And the underlying technology that you mentioned is Node.js, and that is um, non-blocking and event-driven, which was really always the problem with using like Windows XP for control. Uh, you, you would press a button and then it would block the rest of the program until that function was done. So Node.js addresses that, and I've been deploying it on several projects lately, and it works just fine. So do you have any more thoughts about Node-RED and where you see it going? Well, one of the, the, I think the really interesting things is the community around it as well. Yeah. And that folks are publishing their flows um, and they're publishing their nodes. So you can go on to the, uh, the uh, Node-RED uh, website and you can search and see if someone has created already a flow or a node for what you're trying to do. And there's already a few in the AV area have been published. So for instance, someone has published a node to interface with Kramer presentation switchers. Cool. Um, and there's, there's a node for PJ link control of projectors. Awesome. Um, and so you can start to wire all this stuff together and then it really allows you to move beyond just the AV system in the room because you can tie in external web services. You can tie into, if you have a lighting system, it's very easy to tie into that. Uh, you can tie into Alexa or other voice controls if you want to add voice control. Uh, it's really, the, I think the great thing about it is that it is this open platform and allows you to bring in all these various technologies and, and make them work in harmony with each other, which I always think is sort of the goal of us when we're trying to put together these AV systems is to make it function as one system. And the model of that technology being closed and proprietary just doesn't really, won't really get us there, won't really get us into the future. We're having something that is open that anyone can write a node for and publish and that you, could, you really can connect with anything. 
that I think is 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 absolutely where we have to go and, and where the industry will start to trend to. We'll just have these external pressures to do that. Yeah, I'm kind of, I'm looking forward to that future. So this this idea of sharing nodes, I think is really powerful. Node.js uh, works with Node Package Manager, which is basically an online repository that anybody could submit their modules to. And when you use Node Red, you basically go into a search uh, bar and look and just look for something. You have no idea that it's uh, NPM underneath there. What do you think it's going to take for the AV community to develop the habit of publishing their drivers? I think at some point you're gonna you're gonna lose your competitive edge if you're not publishing your your driver that eventually it's going to get to a point where in order for you to sell your product, you're going to have to have that uh, that ability for people to interface your hardware with an open source control platform. That's interesting. So a lot like it happens today, a manufacturer, sometimes we'll even contract a company like mine to write a Crestron AMX, Extron module. You see the same thing might happen in this open source area. I think eventually that's where we're going to get to, yeah. Fascinating. And in, in the modern development, web development, software development, it's actually a common thing to publish open source software just to uh, get some recognition and, and show people what kind of skills you have. I wonder if that'll catch on in AV as well. Possibly so, yeah. As we see the next generation of IT slash AV enthusiasts start to uh, start to hone their chops, that may be a great place for them to demonstrate what they can do. So we're singing all the praises of these solutions. Obviously, you could run it anywhere. Run it on a Raspberry Pi for $35. It's cheap. It's flexible. It's open source. What are some of the cons that you could think of? I think just the lack of a commercial support structure. No one's commercialized this at this point. You can't pick up the phone and call tech support and have someone who walk you through, you know, the particular issue that you might be having. You have to get online and join a forum and, um, you know, really sort of dig in yourself to fix things that are happening. Um, so that lack of commercial support offering, I think, is the is the biggest con at this point. And, th- and then, of course, it's just not proven, you know, and we don't want to be putting technologies into our builds that um, that don't have a good, strong track record. And I feel comfortable with the stability of the hardware and the software stack that I'm using. But it's going to take some time, I think, for others to really develop that comfort level. Yeah, a lot of it is perception. Um, there's been plenty of reports. I keep mentioning the Raspberry Pi, but I think uh, electronics are also commoditized nowadays. I mean, a, a processor, a Linux processor is a Linux processor. Um, of course, the electronics have some tolerances built into them, but there's plenty of reports out there of these devices running 24-7 for many years. Um, as far as the software goes, I really haven't seen it fall down uh, or do any weird stuff. Like you mentioned, you do have to go to Google or go turn to the web to find some answers sometimes. But I do that with proprietary systems as well <laughs> many times. So I, I personally think a lot of this is just perception. And I wonder what it will take to actually change that perception because it's kind of a, a you go first type of, um, type of a, a scenario at the moment. Probably just a few brave souls have to step out there and start using it. Exactly. So are you working on anything interesting at the moment that you'd like to share with us? Something we've been been working on that, that we've that we've gotten a lot of 
head turns. A lot of interest is uh, using virtual reality to mock up buildings and rooms and spaces that we're uh, doing renovation on or that we're building for the first time. And we're using, in that space, we're using Revit and we're taking the Revit models and then bringing them into a blender, which is an open source tool, and texturizing, adding textures to the Revit models. And then from there, exporting into Unreal Engine, which is working with an Oculus Rift headset. And we've been able to get it to the point where we can, we take a, a building that we're working on and we can have a person virtually navigate through the entire building um, and go into a, into a classroom and they can see the layout of the classroom and see what the sight lines look like and get an idea of the screen sizing. Um, and it's been very interesting in terms of the response that we've gotten from folks here in our facilities group and IT groups that build these buildings and do the actual designs. Um, the, our architects and engineering folks um, have ex expressed a lot of interest in it. And it's very compelling. You put on the headset and you are really in that space. It's, it's very, you know, the, the, the resolution, the fidelity is obviously not the same as reality, but the responsiveness as you turn your head and as you look around is enough to create that illusion that you're in that space. And you can really get a sense of the space that you just can't get that sense from a drawing. So we're really excited to start showing this now to uh, project stakeholders, the folks that are making the decisions on budget and making the decision, you know, at schematic design level about, you know, do we go with one large classroom or two smaller classrooms or how are we going to lay out this office space? Um, so we see a lot of potential. We just started uh, really getting this working about a month ago. So we haven't had a lot of experience under our belt yet, but it shows a lot of promise. And I think another place where software can be used within the design build process uh, itself uh, to bring value to the customers. Absolutely. I had a gentleman named David Bianchardi on the show a few weeks ago, and he uses virtual reality quite a bit for modeling, just like you were talking about. And um, his intention there is to manage the risk in, in a building project because you have all these unknowns, you're, you're putting in this technology that may not be tested or parallel technologies that may need to integrate with each other and you're not quite sure how to, how to look in the end and using virtual, virtual reality is a way for, for you to simulate all those different systems working together. So um, I, I, I kind of took away from that that you're using it to make design decisions. Do you see any value as in, uh, in terms of managing risk? I think one of the things that came out from some of the engineers that came in to see it, but the more the um, the electrical engineering group, is being able to look at uh, the various utilities that are going into a space uh, and how they may or may not interact with each other. They may, you know, we may be designing things to try and live in the same exact physical space. Um, so some of that risk, which I don't may may not be the same type of risk. That uh, that the other gentleman was talking about, um, but no, I, I we ha we've really just started to scratch the surface of what we can use this technology for. Yeah, I'm always looking for practical applications, but in the beginning of anything like this, it's it's you really you don't know what what you don't know, and um, the, there's just so much potential that you really do need to just start using it to see to see what comes out of it. That's what that's what our theory was. We were said, okay, let's just start. Let's just build it and see what we can do with it. And we knew initially, I think our, our main objective was to try and make decisions about most distant viewer and screen sizing. And we quickly found that 
the resolution of the goggles themselves are going to limit that. You're not okay. going to be able to really look at, you know, such and such point font at such and such distance and say, oh, that's legible because the resolution of the display in your eye isn't is not dense enough to be able to make those types of decisions but you can get a general sense of the of the size of the screen and there's all sorts of other design decisions that you can you can make um outside of most distant viewer um and one of the things we also found just a point of interest is that it can be kind of nauseating to fly through these spaces (laughs) and uh some people are okay with it and some people they're in there for a few minutes and they're like okay i gotta take a break um and so what we're doing to try and help with that is we're going to set up sort of a guided tour mode for folks so that they can put on the headset and it'll take them through the model in a more, um, you know, more controlled fashion and then have a pause point where you can pause and you can stop and you can look around and, you know, this is the such and such classroom. And then when you're ready to proceed, you press the button and then you proceed on to the next point in the tour. Um, so, pro, pro, so providing a more controlled environment for some folks, I think, will be really helpful. And other people are just going to want to be able to fly through the whole model and look at every nook and cranny user interface design so you've got your advanced user that wants to fly yeah and the other one who just wants to be taken by the hand and shown around a bit like exactly it. so let's shift gears back to this uh control solution with node red what are your ideas on on employing that in a, in a practical basis how would you deploy it what kind of hardware would you use what kind of user interfaces do you expect how will they be made will it be html5 what do you what does this solution look like in real life so uh, I have a proof of concept right now that is a Raspberry Pi, and it's using the Raspberry Pi Foundation touchscreen, a seven-inch, I think it's a seven-inch touchscreen, okay. and that's mounted into an articulating case um, that will sit sits on your desktop and um, or tabletop, and that screen will articulate um, up uh, on up and down. Um, and the UI itself is. Uh, running Chromium, which is the underlying technology for Chrome, the, uh, the the browser, but Chromium is the version that you get on the Raspberry Pi for uh, for Linux. And the uh, the web page itself is running all HTML5 and Angular, which is a, a web technology that allows you to create single page web apps. Um, and the uh, Chromium is running in kiosk mode, and it's set to auto boot into kiosk mode. So when this thing boots up, it launches the operating system. Then it launches Chromium, goes full screen, goes to that local host web page, which is the web page it's running the the, the user interface. Um, and so that's for I think you know somewhere sub a hundred dollars, you've got a touch screen and a control processor. Um, that is very stable, very usable. Um, on the the back end of that, you could really have any sort of matrix switcher, presentation switcher, anything that you can find out what the protocol is that it's using. And if, if, if it's published, then you're all set and you're good to go. And I found um, a company that is a manufacturer in China and through Alibaba was able to order a sample unit and for just a few hundred dollars have a very functional presentation switcher with, I think it's got three HDMI in a mini display port in and a VGA in, and then uh, HD base T out and HDMI out. And that's all completely controllable through the node red running uh, through the raspberry Pi running node red. Um, 
and then from there you can do uh, we have set up voice control using an Alexa uh, for an Alexa dot for voice control if you want to add that layer on as well. Wow, that's uh, that's pretty fascinating stuff. Let, let me circle back to the, the beginning. I've been taking some notes here. So what you describes with the Raspberry Pi, um, yeah, it's funny. We've we've stumbled upon basically the same technologies. So Raspberry Pi with the the official Raspbian image and uh, Chromium running in 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 kiosk mode. And Chromium is the open source version of Chrome. So I made an image called Control Pi. It's available on GitLab, which basically does all of that for you. It's got Raspbian. It's got that Chromium that just boots at startup. It's got uh, the SD card and read-only mode to protect it a little from power outages. And then you were talking about using APIs, right? So you could control anything with an API. And that's what Node-RED does, right? So you can pull over HTTP nodes, TCP nodes, and... I think the cool thing is, is you could test all of that on your laptop without buying any hardware and then deploy the exact same programming to whatever you'll be using for a control processor. And finally, this idea of contract manufacturing. I, I first heard this from Colin Bierney and it kind of blew my mind, but I guess why not go to Alibaba and order your matrix switcher? Um, I'm sure that the latest and greatest technology will always need to be provided by a uh, purpose-built manufacturer with lots of experience and a support team. Where do you think the line will be, or is there one between, how do you make that decision between contract manufacturing and, and turning to your more traditional AV manufacturers? So I think where it's going to be is if you're building 200 classrooms, you're going to want to try and do it as cost effectively as possible. And that's where you could turn to contract manufacturing. You know, you could find something off the shelf that that that, that manufacturer already makes. Or you could do, if you wanted, you could do something OEM and give them a spec and have them build a, that particular product just for you. Um, but I, yeah, I think when you get it scale, that's where it starts to really make sense to start turning towards uh, alternative sources for, for sourcing the actual underlying matrix switching, the, the signal distribution hardware. Fascinating. But as, as these systems scale, um, the risk will be scaling with it. How do you go about managing that? So there's... And uh, the Node-RED software itself will run on the Raspberry Pi, but it'll also run on a server. So you could have a server environment either running locally within your server farm or within Amazon Web Services or some other infrastructure as a service offering. And that can provide oversight for all of your installations. And, you know, be, uh, could be pinging each of your devices when they're online, could send a notification when a device goes offline, um, can allow you to actually control various elements of each of the room, like so um, adjusting labels or color schemes or basic functionality, um, all between uh, the, those individual pies, that fleet of, of control pies that you have, to, to use that term, uh, back to some sort of central service to monitor and control them. Um, and then there's also enterprise um, monitoring technologies out there that you could use to be monitoring all your devices. So we have here at Cornell, we have a, um, a very standard network topology that we deploy where each classroom or conference room will get uh, fiber 
from our backbone into the room. And then we put in a edge switch, same edge switch that goes into our TR closets, maybe a smaller one, like an eight port instead of a 24 port. But sometimes we do use a 24 port for larger rooms. And each device is on, uh, is on that network. Uh, we have um, AV subnetting procedure in place. And then all those devices get monitored. So we have enterprise monitoring. Um, and that monitoring then is tied into our enterprise notification system so that if a device goes offline, whoever is on call will get a push notification on their phone or they'll get a phone call or whatever they decided is that they want to whatever method they've decided that they want to have the communication sent to them. Um, and so I think as this starts to scale out, you just have to start to build enterprise models for monitoring and for notifications and for uh, maintenance of these devices. Um, managing a whole fleet as well of, of these types of devices, you have to think about, well, how do you manage firmware updates? How do you, um, you know, when the next version of Node.js comes out or the next version of Node Packet Manager comes out, you know, how are you going to monitor that? And I think having a test environment will be important. Um, and then also... Um, sort of not pushing out updates across your entire ecosystem at once, but maybe having a subset of rooms that you push out updates to monitor for stability and then roll out to the larger set of rooms. So it really starts to become more of an active environment. Like it becomes a, a, a production IT environment as you start to go down this path and isn't really as before. I think the idea of an AV system was you kind of built it and then it was there for, four or five, six years, whatever. And then you probably do a forklift on it, or maybe you would do, you know, you'd be able to do some sort of more precise update, something more um, surgical than, than a forklift. But generally speaking, you'd pull out the old stuff and put in the new stuff. I think now we're starting to look at a more of a continuous update model where you're continuously updating the systems, you're adding features, adding new, um, uh, new technologies and, um, and that's that's a different model. And that's a different way to start thinking about the AV infrastructure and starting to think about it as a more of enterprise IT infrastructure. Absolutely. Sounds, uh, sounds very interesting. And it sounds like you really get the opportunity to, to customize like that last point where you're continually updating, not just the end user experience, but also that monitoring and, and uh, notification system. You can tailor that to what best suits your support team. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. You can start to integrate. If your support team is using Slack, you can put, you, you can push notifications to Slack. If they're using Ops Genie, you know, whatever technology they're using, you can build that. And it's not an integration that's, um, you know, it's not like you're just stringing things together haphazardly. It can be done in a very robust way. Yeah. So, um, what, what can we do as a community to start sharing these solutions with each other? Because the way it is now, you go to Infocom and see what manufacturers come out with. Now we have this alternative where everybody could kind of make their own solution. Um, but I think it would be a bad idea to, to um, not share what we learn with each other. What, how do you see that playing out? I think we just need to start developing and uh, publishing our, you know, if we're working with a Node-RED environment or other open source environments, start publishing our work. Um, there's, um, I think, an opportunity to put together some developer kits and, um, you know, bundle together some of the technologies and distribute those for people who want to actually start experimenting with and, and using this stuff and, and build some sort of community around that so that we can start to knowledge share. Yeah, I'm all on board for that. 
So one final question on this point. I'm, I'm not sure how much uh, your organization works with contractors like uh, independent programmers or even integrators, consultants. Where do you see that traditional AV integration ecosystem? What's their role in this new kind of an environment where you're using open source software and maybe even contracting, contract manufacturing the equipment? So I think yeah, definitely the installation side, we're still going to have a need for people to come in and install the technology and pull the wires and, and wire it all together and make a working system out of it. But it may be less and less uh, specifying you know, a, sp- a particular um, manufacturer that that integrator is comfortable with. It may be less programming um, and so more uh, along the lines of, of a, just an installation component. But I, th- I think we're still a little ways off from that reality. Um, and there's a lot of other things that need to play out before, before that happens. But it, I think it would be good for, you know, anyone who's in this space to really start learning about what viable technologies are out there and start preparing their people and start thinking about, you know, what does that look like that, what that new future might look like. Excellent. Um, any final thoughts? Things are changing and then technology is always changing and it's always hard to keep ahead of stuff and know, okay, well, what's, what's a real change and what's just sort of a possibility. I think this has enough potential, like this idea of software eating into the control stack. Um, I think this has enough potential to disrupt that it's, it's something that should be taken seriously and looked into and, and understood, um, and certainly maybe not the whole world will move over that way, but I think there'll be a significant portion of people that just the value proposition is too great. There's just, it's it, the, the cost savings and the ability to manage your, your infrastructure at an enterprise level um, will be too attractive and that you'll, you'll see a lot of um, folks move over that way, but perhaps not everybody. Great. Andrew, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me, Patrick. I hope you could tell from this episode how excited I am that Andrew and I have stumbled upon the same technologies. And as Andrew mentioned, the biggest drawback is there is no one single place to turn to for support to learn exactly how to set these things up, how to create a reliable workflow that you could execute on project after project. And that's why we created the control pie image, because why should we all be doing the same steps over and over? And that's available completely free on GitHub. Just go to github.com and search for Control Pi. It's also why we made the Raspberry Pi in AV class available at learnavprogramming.com. Now, Andrew inspired me to make a free version of this course so you could dip your toe in the water and get an idea of what it's like to work with Node-RED and the Raspberry Pi in AV systems. So go to learnavprogramming.com and sign up for that free course and you'll get an idea of what we're talking about. And here's what Mark Day, founder of Ideabox, had to say about his experience with the online courses at learnavprogramming.com. You know, Patrick, it's funny how the smallest things can sometimes be the start of really big ideas. Uh, Before I took the learnavprogramming.com courses, I was in that proprietary... I'm only a control system programmer kind of mindset, right? Uh, when it came to new technologies or current technologies like JavaScript or or things like that, for some reason, I thought that was different from what I'm doing. And what taking your courses flipped for me 
was not so much what I learned technically taking the courses. It was the mindset of, oh, wait a second, I'm already doing 99% of what some of these most modern programmers are doing. I just have to learn uh, you know, the other 1%. And that's really what I did. So it's really been kind of a big change after taking the course. Um, and I would really recommend this course to any integrator. Not only will it obviously help their skill set, but more importantly, it might change their whole mindset, uh, which is more important and, and, and really show them new opportunities, open the door so they kind of see problems through a different lens. Uh, I got to tell you, one of the, the biggest changes for me was as soon as I taught myself HTML, CSS, JavaScript and saw the UIs that I can make with those technologies, I, I just couldn't sell a uh, Crestron touch panel again. Mark is a great example of somebody who takes new information and really applies it. I know that Mark still sells a lot of Crestron equipment, but for him, for his company, for his customers, for his business, he needed a better UI. He needed another option for a user interface and modern programming allowed him to do that. So the question is, how can you use modern programming to improve your business? Please go to learnavprogramming.com and wherever you see a sign up button, go ahead and sign up and you'll get some free information to get a feel of my learning style and what kind of information is available. And of course, it would be an honor to have you enroll in one of our courses and help you upgrade your skills and take this industry to the next level. Thanks for listening to Software Defined Survival. I hope you found it useful and maybe it inspires you to try out something new this week. If you have any questions, Go to softwaredefinedsurvival.com and click the appropriate button. I'd love to answer your questions on the air. And if you'd like to help spread the word, please subscribe, comment, and share it with your friends. Thanks.